Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is Pam Alfrey Hernandez, founder and principal of the executive consulting and coaching firm The Right Reflection. Alfrey Hernandez created The Right Reflection in February 2015 after a distinguished and groundbreaking career at Omaha-based Woodman Life, a nonprofit financial services organization with $10 billion in assets and more than 1,500 employees and sales agents. Starting out as a trainer, she rose to the rank of Chief Operating Officer and the first female executive team member of the 125-year-old firm. After earning her master's degree in applied positive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, Pam decided she would use her experience as a mentor, coach, and leader to help others create environments where transformation and innovation can emerge. She's a frequent speaker and panelist at conferences and seminars, and is certified in several psychological and leadership tools and assessments, which she uses to help her clients identify opportunities. Pam lives in Omaha, where she enjoys spending time with her family, friends, and the two dogs, Toby and Sadie. Pam, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. There's something on your website. You have a great blog and you write a lot about the work that you do. And there was something on one blog where you referenced the saying, awareness precedes choice, which precedes change. Mm -hmm. Until we can become aware of our assumptions, we are controlled by them. Once we are aware, then we have a choice of how we react. In other words, if you don't see it, it will manage you. If you do see it, you can manage it. And I just wonder if that encapsulates your philosophy of coaching. It certainly does. I'm, I'm glad you found that particular clip. Um, I really divide uh, coaching into two parts. Some people call it the inner and the outer game, but it's also referred to as vertical and horizontal development. And um, horizontal or the outer game is, and it's important, um, it's like learning how to do stuff, you know, how to do a performance review, how to give feedback, how to do, etc. Unfortunately, a lot of coaching starts and stops there. And vertical development is more about who you are and the inner game, because one drives the other. And so I, I concentrate on both, but what you're referring to in that quote is really vertical development. We go through our life 99% on autopilot, and we're driven by assumptions and beliefs and things that we're not even aware of. And by becoming aware of them, then we have some choice. Uh, is this serving us? is something that I've been doing and thinking for the last 30 years still appropriate. And that's where that um, saying comes from. And the analogy I often use with clients is pretend you were born with permanent purple contact lenses and you can't take them out. You're going to think the world's purple 
And that's just the way it is. But let's say then you move on and you get purple glasses. The world still looks purple. But when you see around the perimeter, you can say, well, maybe this, maybe it's not all purple. Or maybe it's not purple all the time. And then when you truly get to the point of being able to take those glasses on, then you can realize, wow, when I put them on, the world's purple. When I take them off, it's not. And that's really the same thing about our beliefs. When we can say, wow, I've always assumed that if I wanted something done right, I had to do it myself. Maybe that's not true. Or maybe it's not true all the time. Or maybe it's not true with everyone. And so that's kind of where that quote is, is leading to. So I find that really helpful. And I'm wondering if you might further help me perhaps distinguish types of coaching and maybe even some misconceptions that your clients seem to have as they come into the process with you about what even coaching is. Yes. Well, I always start engagement with asking if people have ever had a coach before, even an athletic coach or some kind of performance coach, you know, what has been their experience and what do they think coaching is? I would say for the most part, people do perceive coaching as staying on that horizontal development because they're actually not even aware of vertical development. So it does take some education that, you know, okay, you told me you want to um, learn to delegate better okay, I could just pull out my list of the 10 best practices when it comes to delegating, but nothing changes. Uh, You can read it, you know it, but you don't do it. And that's where the vertical development comes in, where we look into, you know, what's happened to you in the past when you've delegated, et cetera, and finally get to why you're so uncomfortable about delegating. Uh, Because until we can shift that mindset the 10 best practices aren't going to be helpful. Many people, I think, can be a little dismissive of the whole idea of coaching. Mm -hmm. And so they may be a little more accepting of the idea of um, performance coaching, especially around physical activity like sports. Mm -hmm. But sometimes there's a reaction to other forms of coaching, which is, it's just life. Get on with it. Yes. Which in many ways feels just like a very closed-minded no growth attitude, but I still think it's quite pervasive. And I I wonder if that's something you battle against. Yes. And and really in two contexts, because one, that attitude towards coaching tends to make people think anyone can coach uh, because all it is, is telling people what to do or how to do something. The real role of the coach is to listen very closely and to be able to hear how that person is seeing the world. Because if the person sees the world through those contact lenses, and there's actually a whole theory of adult development that I won't go into here, but where we are in our own development is going to determine what we can see and what we can't see. And so it really behooves the coach to be able to talk with someone and meet them where they are because to expect them to have all these incredible self-insights when they are like, just get on with it, of course, it's going to be unsuccessful. So you really have to, 
kind of call it scaffolding. The way you uh, a scaffold will help you uh, move up a, a wall. Scaffolding questions can help uh, lead someone to realize, oh, okay, I hadn't thought about it that way. I'm sure that no client is representative of all clients. I'm sure they all come with their own particular quirks and, and challenges and opportunities. That being said, is there uh, one or two stories that you might share about a client journey that might illustrate the kinds of work that you do? Well, you're right about the individual quirks, but I would say most of them do follow a pattern. As a coach, you have to say, oh, this isn't, you know, pattern one, two, three. Each person is individual, but each person comes in thinking they're seeing reality the way everyone else sees reality. And to realize, that's the first step, is to realize, wait a minute, other people don't see this the same way I do. And uh, after a while, maybe I won't even see it that way. Um, I do a leadership development program, and I'm right in the middle. It's a nine-month program. And so it starts in October, and so now we're, we're here in March. And all the participants uh, at this stage are kind of at the same place. And I love this part because they've had six months to really process and think about things. And I say at this stage, in fact, my latest blog is titled this, is called The View from the Balcony. And um, at some point, and, and these participants all kind of got here at the same time, um, it's really about taking perspective. But uh, the metaphor is they have the ability to get up on the balcony and look at their own life, their own reality, their own relationships with some more perspective. They're not down in the weeds. They're not down there. And um, just to give you a couple um, examples, perhaps one client realized that something was going on right now, that they kept saying yes to things that they didn't really want to do, just because people asked them and they were nice and um, you don't want to disappoint people. But it really wasn't serving them. But the statement this person said when they were on the balcony was, oh, my goodness, I've been doing this my whole life. Uh, you know, I did it in college. I did it in grad school. I did it my first job. So then that realization, then we can go on and say, okay, not only do you need, have to serve others, but you do need to serve yourself. And so then we can get into some horizontal uh, techniques to make sure that what you're saying yes to is the best way you can serve. In fact, a phrase, I always have a favorite phrase kind of of the month. And right now the phrase is, how can I best serve? And um, my clients are really responding to this phrase too. Because the thing is, is just because you can do something and people ask you to do something, it doesn't mean that's the best use of your skills. So that's one. Um, another one, and this is very common, where even though we put on a great persona at work and people think we're confident and, and stuff, behind closed doors, most people in some area of their life feel they're not good enough. And I had a client who held back in meetings because they were intimidated just by some of the pedigrees in the, of the people around them. But there was a meeting and this is kind of getting up on the balcony, too, where the topic of the meeting was important to this person. Important enough for them to realize it's not about me. 
It's about the mission of this organization. And this person was able to step up and do these things. And walking out of the meeting, the um, uh, CEO turned to this person and said, thank you for your leadership. Well, this person showed up in coaching on cloud nine. So those are the, the patterns that, um, yes, awareness is great. And I spend a lot of time on awareness, but awareness by itself isn't going to change your life. So awareness precedes choice because some of the things you're doing may be appropriate at particular times, or they may be exactly the right thing to do. So it's really your choice to see, is this serving me or not? Or is there another alternative where some of the horizontal stuff comes in? And then you have a choice. And one word I oftentimes uh, use with folks, and it's so funny, I'll say, you know, pause. And in that pause is all sorts of opportunities. So people will come to class, and we always do a check-in. And they'll say, I paused. And then they may say, I still did it, but I paused. (laughs) (laughs) I would imagine that anybody can benefit from coaching. That being said, you have to run a business with probably a particular focus. So who, who are your clients? I tend to focus in leadership coaching on VP level and above. I guess it's part of that saying, how can I best serve? I, you know, I started as an individual contributor. I've been a supervisor, a manager, a director, a VP, and then C-suite. Okay. So I think I have the combination of the horizontal and vertical development that uh, I do have some functional knowledge as how do you deal with a board? Uh, how do you deal with strategic issues? How do you do this? So at the functional level, I think I bring something to the VP level and above. And then uh, the training I've had, both at the University of Pennsylvania and other things, really focuses on this vertical development. And frankly, I find it more fulfilling to work when, one, people are interested in their own self-development, and they're engaged, and they're ready to drive. Now, you said everybody can benefit from coaching, and everybody can, but some people aren't ready. And where my experience has been for that is when I've gone outside my real target, when somebody has referred somebody to me who needs coaching, but they don't realize it. You know, after a few sessions, it becomes clear. I had one client who comes in 
so you start asking the questions. But they were always had the view, if the people around me would just shape up, everything would be fine. You know, you can probe and say, yes, but what could you do or stuff? And when it comes back to everybody else needs to change but me, then they're not ready. And actually, until that way of dealing with the world doesn't work for them anymore and they're in crisis, they won't be ready. You talked about how, despite every client having their own sort of individuality and perception of the world that is unique for them, nonetheless, there are some commonalities. What is your diagnosis of society's ills? Where, where are we? Certainly at the levels you're talking about, your clients, senior business leaders, society is facing all sorts of inequities. The business world is facing all sorts of challenges. What is broken about people or their situation um, that is common? Often, it's not the person that's broken, it's the system. Whether I, I work in healthcare, I work in business, I work in financial services, and um, I think you're seeing it even in all the people define it differently, the great resignation. You know, what is the role of work in our lives and what do we expect or want from work, especially dealing with um, physicians and other folks in the healthcare area and especially through this pandemic. As a society, we ask so much from people and don't give back. Now, I was a former educator. I was a high school English teacher before I went uh, to Woodman. And just following along with teacher friends and what's going on, what we're expecting of educators to solve all these social problems, but yet not talk about any social problems, um, you know, it'd be very, very hard to maintain uh, any kind of quality of life and stay, you know, people in healthcare and people in, in education and other things are mission-driven, but it's hard to be mission-driven when you're being beaten up every day. Uh, and just, the, of course, the polarity of, of uh, you know, society at this point, that it seems the only way you can comment is to make someone else the enemy. And the discourse... You know, I almost can't watch TV anymore with the news. And, and it's like, really? And, or on social media, there's so much hate. And so I think a lot of that is broken. The idea that we really do have some responsibility for our neighbors. The one thing I think we truly have forgotten how to do is assume good intention. We always seem to assume the opposite. So, so a lot of the work I do is with, with people. So how do you, how do you thrive or at least mitigate in difficult situations? And some people are trapped in certain situations because of um, money, because of location, because of other circumstances in their lives. So if that's the case, then we work on how do you make the best of it? And then also, if it's not going to be the best, how do you uh, plan for an exit? 
But I spend a lot of time with people with different assessments and things, finding out what their values are, what their strengths are, what their thinking preferences are. So when they are looking to change their circumstances, they know what they're looking for and what will fit them and what won't. wanted to ask about why the right reflection and why you founded it and so i want to ask you a, a two-part question why did you leave what would seem to be a high-flying position at woodman and you mentioned you were in the c-suite so why did you leave to basically start a new business and now you're some years past that departure and you've also got all these skills and this expertise and these tools do you look back on that why that you left and see it differently now well um one thing um i could leave uh <laughs> woodman at that time and uh was a very um generous organization and i had been there long enough that i was able to leave with a pension and healthcare benefits, which a lot of people don't have that opportunity. The other thing is coming up through the organization, I was oftentimes the only woman in whatever role I was in. And over the years, I would mentor women and men. And I always did. But what I found interesting is that when I was visiting with a woman who was bright, successful, ambitious, you know, probably had a family, trying to balance everything. Um, within the course of 15, 20 minutes, it would come out that they felt they were the only one who was somehow not doing it right. And not only that, they couldn't share that they felt inadequate. Uh, and they were made to feel they were a bad mother and a bad employee. And again, that's a systems issue and a society issue. Uh, and I know I faced that myself. Um, my daughter, when she was in middle school, uh, told me, Mom, I'll never do what you do. And I felt kind of hurt. I thought I was being a good role model. And I said, why? And she said, because I'm not willing to make the sacrifices you do. And I said, well, my goal is that you won't have to. And now she's um, working uh, and a lot of companies are like that. In an organization that has a hybrid model, she has much more flexibility uh, and things. And while certainly uh, work-life balance is not perfect for anybody uh, at this point, she is able to. But it made me wonder, why do women in particular have this 
there's something wrong with me. And so I knew, you know, I, I, I loved my work at Woodman, but the part that I especially loved was the people and the culture. And so I thought when I've got the place to the point that there's good successors, we're heading down, I want to go do something else that focuses on people. Uh, I was able to do that in 2015. And the reason I named my company The Right Reflection, I was in grad school and I had to do a thesis. And it ended up, and I focused on women and self-acceptance. And why do women have less self-acceptance than men? And what's the impact personally and professionally? So anyway, the, the title of my thesis was The Right Reflection. Uh, improving women's self-acceptance. And the right reflection comes to uh, uh, refers to all the different messages we get from society, men and women, but focusing on women and how they internalize those. And so then your view of the world get distorted. Your purple contact lenses are like, you know, a kaleidoscope. Um, and so my role when I left Woodman, I, I really wanted to focus on helping women. But it's kind of evolved more into leadership and this whole vertical and horizontal. One, you know, men need development as much as women do. Um, After some of these leadership programs, um, and there's a banquet and everything, I've had a number of wives of some of my participants come up and take my hand and say, thank you, thank you, because obviously the kind of changes that we have impact how you show up everywhere. So if we can just make everyone more self-aware, is that all boats rise or or something along those lines? The right reflection. I mean, you surround yourself with um, colleagues, associates, um, other people that can support your work, but it's your business. You are the business. Whereas Woodman, as I read from your bio, a substantial organization with, um, you know, more than a century's worth of history to it. And I'm wondering what you have learned about yourself as a leader in the different contexts. You were a leader at that large organization, and now you've led this, this entrepreneurial endeavor. So I'm just wondering, what have you learned about yourself given those different contexts? That, that's a fascinating question because, you know, the, the nice thing at working at a large organization is you have the resources. Um, you know, you have an IT department. You have, there's money you know, to impact change. But there's also a responsibility to represent the organization, even if you don't particularly agree with the decision that's been made. And that's hard sometimes. Someone asked me a few years out, what do you like best about being on your own? And I said, well, one thing is I represent only myself. I can be who I am, support what I want. Um, And what is interesting is I'm using a new values clarification tool. And so I decided to take up myself. My number one out of like 57 different values, my number one was (laughs) self-direction. Which means, you know, to me um, is, and that's why I've never taken on a partner. I have some strategic alliances, but I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And, you know, and I, 
I also contract out rather than hire employees because I don't want to be responsible for a payroll. And I don't want to be responsible to have to, you know, build a budget and accommodate others. And I'm fortunate enough at this point in my life, I don't have to. think that a place that values emerge from is not only this sort of unknowable intrinsic genetic makeup that we have, but also the context in which we find ourselves being shaped. And typically that's when we're kids, right? Those experiences. And, and, and often there are moments in later life, but things seem to become a little more stable, maybe a little too set, dare I say, as we get older which is a way of me asking you to think back to your childhood. And I'm wondering what memories stand out to you from your childhood. And you're right. Um, and in fact, in one of the tools I use, it gets into things called reactive tendencies, which are really more the gifts and skills we learned as children that allowed us, one, to survive, and two, to thrive. And those things that we learn, we tend to hold on to because they worked. But eventually, if we over-rely on them, they are no longer effective or they can even hold us back. Now, those uh, reactive tendencies tend to fall into one of three categories. I want to be liked or I need to be liked. I need to be perfect or I need to be in charge. And now we all have a little of all of those. And there's good things about them. My bucket was I need to be liked. And uh, I can see where that came from very easily. I had um, an older brother who <laughs> got into trouble all the time. And I saw what happened to him. Uh, and so I was the good kid. And specifically, I was the good girl. And especially compared by teachers to my brother. And... Uh, my father would always talk about what a good girl I was and how I never gave them any problems. You know, and while I had that wonderful love, in the back of your mind you're thinking, what if I wasn't good? You know, so kind of growing up and, and, um, and then there's things in society and, and especially, and I do find this a lot with women, but it, it's there with men too, that idea that to be accepted, you must be pleasing. And if you, um, uh, you know, raise your voice, you're seen as the angry one or those things. And so you go through and, and the thing is it can serve you well. And you, I mean, you can do well in school. 
You can do well in work. I mean, who doesn't want to work with someone who's pleasant and wants to help you? The problem happens then is at some point, if that's really important to you, and that's self-protecting, you're not going to speak up when it's important. And if you have to make decisions um, that people aren't going to like, it's going to impair your effectiveness if you can't. And that's a lot of what that awareness is. I work with a lot of people who have that. And because of, because of the need to be liked, they avoid conflict and they avoid giving feedback and they avoid. And, and so, uh, and I tell them that's never going to leave you. I mean, that's part of who you are. That's probably part of your charm. But in those situations, what you need to think about is what outcome am I trying to create? That person I told you about earlier who went into the meeting, that's what she very much wanted to be liked. And, but realized the topic of that meeting was important enough to her and the outcome she was trying to create that all views got on the table allowed her to put that discomfort on hold. So yes, mine definitely is wanting to be liked. It's fascinating to me that you actually had that uh, moment of self-reflection when you were younger about your father saying, you've been a good girl and you never give me any trouble. And, and that voice in your head saying, Sure, but but what if I wasn't? And I'm curious about how that realization acted upon you and perhaps how it shaped your life you know, since then. Very much so. The other thing is my father was at the university in Lincoln in education. So he was out in the schools all the time supervising student teachers. He knew all the teachers. He knew all the principals. And so I especially had to be the good kid because I could turn around the hall and see my dad anytime and everyone knew my dad. So there was that kind of, you need to be good. Um, but yes, it has, it's, it impacted me all the way through my life in the fact that when you want to be liked and you want to be seen as, you know, a good mother, a good wife, a good employee, you do end up stuffing parts of yourself. And in fact, of course, I'm always taking courses and I'm just starting a course where um, that will hopefully help me help my clients. But in order to do it, I'm going through it and working on what is that one big change that would make a difference for you. I'm still playing with it, but it's to one, be present to my own life and to others and to be direct and authentic in a compassionate way, but to no longer, I guess it's kind of dismantling the less effective sides of wanting to be liked. I don't wanna feel this good just cause you called last night.
mention in your one of your blog posts that you lost your mother when she was 46 and you were only 21. 21, yes. And so your mother passed from cancer. I don't know, as painful as that no doubt was, how that impacted you then and how that did shape your life, You know, not least as you have become this, a mother yourself, but also a role model. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, definitely. And in fact, for m- much of my life, I divided it into before and after, before and after my mom died. And to me, that kind of, I could tell you, my name's Pam Hernandez, and my mom died when I was 21, and that would define who I was. Um, I can remember my children were young, and I was traveling for work. I got snowed in at an airport, and there was this book I'd seen but I could not bring myself to buy it and read it. But it was called Motherless Daughters, A Legacy of Loss. And I bought it, and I read it in the airport. And I was underlining everything about all the impacts that you don't really realize. So I finally got home about 2 in the morning and in a snowstorm, drove home and woke my husband up and started reading him sections of that and saying, this is why I'm so weird. Uh, (laughs) And you'd only have to talk to my daughters to understand uh, the impact of me losing my mother. And, And they never got to meet her, had on the mother I became. So yes, it was huge. And um, in many ways, you know, you think you get over things, you revisit it at different stages in your life. And every different loss you go through, you kind of, it, somehow you have to fit that into the narrative arc of my life. Um, my husband passed away last year. That's another, my, my father passed away again at an appropriate age. He was 86 about 10 years ago. Um, but fitting all that into, you know, who am I and how do I want to show up? I'm curious if in some ways the work you do now is, um, I, I don't know, maybe a, a reconciling of life um, and maybe turning some of these experiences to um, to the benefit of your clients. Yes, and it, it's interesting. Um, along with all those <laughs> things you mentioned, um, I've had breast cancer twice. And um, uh, a friend of mine was recently diagnosed with cancer. And it was funny, as we've reflected, it just totally took her by surprise because there was no cancer in her family. And uh, her parents lived into the late 90s. And so this was just like, whoa. And I was, you know, it was funny because I really, I was diagnosed with cancer when I was 51. My mom died of cancer when she was 46 and I was 21. But I said, for 30 years, I just expected I'd get cancer. I just was kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. And so when I finally was diagnosed, it was like, oh, that's how it's going to show up. You know, it's not so bad. Caught it early, did what we needed to do. But kind of the impact of your experiences shape what you expect from the world. 
And um, um, at this point of in my life, when you talk about reconciling, I really do see one both my the best way I can serve, and I find it incredibly gratifying if I can in any way help someone else to lessen their pain or increase their joy or take away their anxiety. And, you know, you talk about my objective success, and it was, it was, it was so funny. Um, I had a beautiful office at Woodman, just beautiful, great view, private bathroom, all this stuff. And my financial advisor stopped by one time, and um, he came up there. Uh, he was not one who was in favor of me leaving my job. <laughs> um, and he, was, he looked around and he says, why would you leave this? And, you know, and so my first office outside the home was like a 10 foot by 10 foot place I rented. Uh, now I have a little bit larger office, but I was so proud of that little 10 foot by 10 foot office because it was mine. And I put my furniture in there. And that probably goes back to that value of self-direction. Um, but yes, I do just get tremendous satisfaction. And maybe it's because of all the things I've gone through. But tremendous satisfaction if I can help somebody feel better. If you want to see some crazy and also lazy, then you should meet me and my friends. Even though we got no money, for sure it's all funny. Yeah, everything's better with them. We're just like, ooh, ooh, ooh. We don't worry about tomorrow. We just, ooh, ooh, ooh. What we want to do tonight. Waking up at sundown, the world's our playground. And we don't even have to pretend. Every time we're together, it doesn't get better. And So I don't know, is it a cliche to talk about third acts? I do divide, uh, taking my mother out of the picture, I kind of de define the first third of my life up till I was like 33 was when I had my daughter. So up until then was, you know, young life, marriage, starting a career. I had started having children at 33. My husband passed away uh, when I was 66. And, you know, we'd been together for 40 years. So now I'm thinking, okay, 33, 66. If I get a full third act, I'll be 99, which I don't want to do unless I can do healthy and with all my uh, faculties engaged. But it definitely is a third act. I've been doing a lot of thinking about it this last year and, and even some therapy with it because the first two acts were really defined by people outside me. You know, 
meeting certain expectations as a wife, as an employee, as a parent. Um, and so this third act, you know, I get to create. There's no living up to anybody else's expectations, which on the one hand is very freeing, but on the other hand is like, it's almost too large. It's like, okay, how do, and that's one of the reasons I'm taking this course is I'm hoping if I can engage fully that how I can best serve will become apparent to me. How are you going to go about that exploration? That's part of the, um, you know, part of me, because when I created my company in 2015, my husband was also, was already not particularly healthy. So I created that within the confines of, I don't want to do a lot of traveling. I want it to be flexible. I need to have time, this, this, and this. And so I built that. And well, now I don't have those. And so it's like, is this what I really want to do? Is this my best way to serve? A lot of folks my age say, why are you working? You need to learn how to relax. So trying not to close out any opportunity and not to negate different things. I do have a feeling I will continue to do something. My father actually continued to supervise student teachers and um, up until he was 83, and he contracted West Nile encephalitis. But he, he told me, and he didn't, he did it very flexibly and part-time, but he says, you know, I feel like I need to always be doing something and something productive and keep his mind busy. And I think I'm the same way. Now, I certainly can see that flexing depending on what else takes priority in my life. So one of your values you said is self-direction. I am sure there's maybe a a feeling, a small feeling of guilt perhaps that comes with this, but does it feel liberating that you really don't have to respond to anybody else? You don't have to be a role model for all of womankind as a <laughs> C-suite you know, officer. You don't have to be, um, you'll always be a mother, but you maybe don't have to be as attentive to your daughters because they're older. So I, I don't know. I mean, do you feel as if this third act is characterized by liberation? Yes. Um, and it is very liberating, but in your mind, when you're so used to meeting others' expectations, and society's still out there with expectations, it's hard to totally let them go. And so I would say, you know, that is, that is a work in process uh, to truly own my life. So let me ask this final question then on the way out. I love that phrase about the challenge of owning your own life. So I won't put you on the spot, but do you have some advice for anybody listening for how if they are feeling dissatisfied with their career right now, stuck in their life, uh, perhaps they too are approaching a different act in their life journey? Do you have any advice for those people listening? How might they view that particular place that they find themselves in? I have found 
and in the basis of my own life, but also in the basis of all my coaching and uh, leadership programs, that we include an element of a mindfulness practice. Now, there's, that doesn't mean you have to sit in the corner and meditate every morning. Some people do, and that works for them great. But um, that kind of goes back to the way we started, that awareness precedes uh, choice, which precedes change. One of the best things that helps us to be aware is to be able to be in the present and for different people. And, and so I do include that in my coaching in different ways. But um, to, and so when I'm talking with my clients, I'll say, OK, I want you not only what were you thinking, but what were your emotions? And we work on naming emotions. And what were your physical sensations? Because when you can start to be aware of those, that's the foundation of any change. Um, and it's funny because especially with some of my executive types, it's like it's that woo-woo, new agey type stuff. Uh, there is a ton of research on the effectiveness of mindfulness. But it's funny, at the end of my leadership program, almost to a T, they will, each one will say, you know, it really all comes down to mindfulness. Uh, different paths to mindfulness. Um, look into it, what works for you. But um, being mindful and slowing down enough to be aware, the universe is sending us lots of information. We just kind of have to slow down and tune in. My guest today has been Pam Alfre Hernandez, founder and principal of the executive coaching and consulting firm, The Right Reflection. Pam, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Okay, shut this off. Don't record this. Um, <laughs> we'll edit this out. So, this is why I'm so weird. Uh, <laughs> That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at the website livesradioshow.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Lives Radio Show. The music playing in and playing out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for more conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. Thank you.